to Nonprofit Lowdown. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. In this podcast, I recommend a book, tool, tip, podcast, or resource that has helped me to build a multi-million dollar nonprofit organization. I've done the research, so you don't have to. Let's get started. Hey, podcast listeners. It's Rhea Wong, which means it's Nonprofit Lowdown. Here today, I am talking with my friend, Tammy Daly Blackman. She and I have known each other for, gosh, I guess more, more years than we care to count at this point. But Tammy and I have known each other back when she was first the executive director of Breakthrough in Philadelphia, and I was at the Breakthrough National Office, and I've just been sort of keeping keeping in contact with her and keeping tabs on her amazing career since. So welcome, Tammy. Great. Thank you, Rhea. I'm so happy to be here with you. We're so happy to have you. So tell us a little bit about yourself and your path to leadership. Sure. So I think this is so wonderful that we're doing this and so wonderful that you are connecting people to this topic because it's the only one that I'm interested in. I'm actually working on a book right now about finding your leadership path. And I just see that every it's something that affects everyone, no matter what you're doing, no matter what your age or gender, where you live, we're all trying to figure out how to do this well, how to be effective at it. And so for me, it began a couple of ways and it's converged in, in the work I do now. But when you and I met and I was executive director of what was then Summerbridge and then became Breakthrough Collaborative in Philadelphia, that was my second opportunity of being an executive director. But the leadership work had began much earlier than that. And I hearken it back to when I really first learned about development philanthropy. When I was 14 years old, I got a scholarship to go off to a summer program in Massachusetts, far from my home. And it was there that I was being called on to help other students, but not academically. We were all solid academically. That's how we had gotten selected for this program. But some were homesick and I was, you know, ad hoc, the dorm prefect, didn't even know what that was. But it was this amazing experience in realizing that you connect to people. I was doing student government back in my high school at Camden High School in New Jersey. And you just start building those skill sets. And then at Oberlin College was really involved in student government, involved in student finance committee and other kinds of things that were required leadership and, and certainly more than a fleeting interest in, in leadership. And then when it was time to graduate from college, my first job at the Brooklyn Academy of Music was a launch pad because it was asking me to do community engagement. It was asking me to do board development. It was asking me to do grant writing. Some of these terms I had never heard before, and I was being asked to do them at 21, 22 years old and step in in a real role in in a significant way. And I've always been thankful particularly a shout out to my mentor, Mickey Shepard, who was the founding director of 651, the 651 Project at the Brooklyn Academy of Music, because she had an expectation that you would jump in, that you could do the work. And not only an expectation, but a belief. And ultimately, that's what we all want and need is a belief in you. And that just really kept building on and building on to the next things. But really, when it began to crystallize is when I went back to Oberlin College, and for four years, I was working on something that I was deeply passionate about, which was access, educational access. And even though I certainly had benefited from it, I hadn't had a chance to work in it deeply in this way. And I was director of multicultural admissions, and I was also creating a mentoring program for alumni, and again, getting leadership roles that probably far too young 
to have asked for, but I'm so thankful that I got the chance to do those things. And then that's when it led to my first ED role, first at Girls Inc. And then at uh, Breakthrough Collaborative. And then I stepped out from being behind the scenes in that way as an executive director and decided that I really wanted to help as many executive directors as I could versus just helping myself as one. And that was a further crystallization of it that, huh, there are a lot of people out here trying to figure out how to do this. I was a first-time AD at Girls Inc. and thrown into the deep end and had to figure a lot of things out. And though I had wonderful people that I could touch base with and ask them questions, I realized that there were ADs who would love to have done that confidentially, would have loved to have done that with greater reflection and really an opportunity to think through this work in a much more substantial way. And that's how I began my consulting practice versus going back to another CEO role, which I was excited about, but it was actually the opportunity to be a mom and really thinking about how I would mix motherhood with being an executive director or CEO. And I realized that actually I wasn't going to be able to mix it. Now you have to remember my daughter is almost 18 years old. So this was a long time ago. And literally when I asked for one day to work remotely, and I didn't even know how to phrase it. We didn't even use the word remotely then. Right. They looked at me like I had five heads, Rhea. Yeah, I'm and sure. It was, it was very striking. And I thought, I don't know how I can do this. And I'm going to have to figure out a way. It was really encouraging. and said, you've been talking about starting a business. But I thought, that's 10 years from now. I didn't think I'd be doing that in Berkeley, California, a city I'd only arrived in two months prior with a child that was less than two years old, a dog. <laughs> it was like, what? Yeah. And I so my practice, my consulting practice is almost 16 years old and it has been deeply embedded in a couple of things. One is access. So access to information, education, access to how do you become a good leader and then trying to do education and education again around organizational leadership development, education around what it means to be a good leader, trying to build a good infrastructure. And that's at the staff level and at the board level and really thinking about how people find their leadership. And so that's what I've been dedicated to over the last 16 years and have been able to do that in a variety of ways as a consultant, working with clients from all over the country of all sizes, budgets, and in the last three years was asked to take on a more formal role as an executive coach. And I've really dug deep into that work and that learning curve. And now really thinking about the next wave of I'm working with Gen Z and how do we provide Gen Z an opportunity? They're emerging leaders, but they're the first generation in 50 years to come to the workforce with the least amount of work experience. And it mm -hmm. shows. It shows mm -hmm. their lack of understanding, decorum, their lack of understanding about how you move up a ladder, their lack of patience, but not lack of drive, interest, competency. The content and the skill set are solid. It's just how do we provide the professional training? And then you've got many leaders who are established who are just miscommunicating. Again, good people. They've been doing doing the work a long time. They've got great skills, but they're just miscommunicating. And so now I have found the sweet spot where I work between them and helping to these emerging leaders, Gen Z, and then helping corporations, associations, educational institutions, philanthropic institutions, nonprofits, help those leaders to grow, but also the established leaders, helping them to think through how they can support Gen Z and not, you know, lose their sense of humor while they're doing it. Yeah. So that's how I've been building on leadership in, in all of these different ways since, you know, 14 years old, where I could first, you know, think of it and crystallize it all the way till now.
Yeah, that's so interesting because so many people I talk to have really, their path is something that it's like a calling. They're called to it. It's a vocation. It's not just like, oh, and then I had this job, right? It's like mm-hmm. you see the the recurring themes over and over. Okay, so there are three places I want to stop along the way because everything you said is just so many interesting directions it could take. But it's interesting to me that you started your career in philanthropy. And I think in particular, we're going to do a, we're going to do a podcast soon about folks of color in the philanthropic world and mm-hmm. In the fundraising world. And so often as a sector, we've gotten better about diversifying our staff, except really when it comes to the development office. Mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit about, obviously this is a trend that we're all noticing. What can we do about it? And what are the challenges we face personally as a fundraiser of color? Yeah. So in both of the institutions where I became an executive director, there was no director of development. I actually had to do that work in addition to everything else with hiring and board development and so forth. And in each institution, I helped to create that role, nurture it, to sell it, to build the case for it, and then to get the funding for that role in each institution. And I'm really proud of that because both of those organizations were made 20 times better by beginning to formalize, professionalize, fundraising, advancement, developing uh, development, and to care deeply about what it meant and another way to think about diversity, equity, inclusion. And that didn't assume that the, the director of development was always going to be a person of color, but it was, it was beginning to think through what it means to invite people to be philanthropically involved, a variety of people. What does it mean to take a family who doesn't have a lot of money, their child is in our program, but really cares deeply for this program, is really excited about this program, thankful for this program, and find an entree for them to development, to educate them about philanthropy, which doesn't take a lot of education because some of the most giving people are people of color and are poor people mm-hmm. who have very little. We know that mm-hmm. the research shows us that. and But giving them an entree and allowing them to be able to mix with someone who has the ability to, you know, to write a figure check along with it. They, again, don't have very much. So I always tell people that I think about development and that that level first, that most, that most holistic level about the invitation for everyone to be involved. Mm-hmm. Then I do care deeply about who sits in the seats, not just mm-hmm. director of development, but the team. And yes, in this, in this sector, sadly, it has meant that not a lot of people of color get to sit in that seat. I am really convinced after almost 10 years of directing a fellowship that was designed to bring more people people of color into philanthropy. It didn't have a grand name. It was just simply called the Diversity Fellowship. It started at what was then Associated Grant Makers, which is now called Philanthropy Massachusetts. And it is the membership organization for many New England foundations. And I am convinced after that experience, it moved for the remaining four years of its life, it moved to the Proteus Fund, which is a national foundation that works on a lot of different issues related to human rights. But I'm convinced that until you actually invest in something like that, we're talking about an almost 10-year investment to actually train people, bring them into the sector. And again, these were not unqualified, uncompetent people. They had law degrees and MBAs and educational policy degrees. They just weren't getting an opportunity to be seen as a possible candidate for philanthropic philanthropic positions. And we mm-hmm. created a fellowship that was built on the idea of building effective grant makers. It didn't say building effective women grant makers mm-hmm. or African-American or Latino or Asian-American grant makers. It was just, that was the premise, building effective 
educating effective grant makers, teaching and educating effective grant makers. And by chance, they were people of color who were highly qualified. And we were able to debunk that myth that they couldn't find qualified candidates. Mm-hmm. But in that, it got me thinking a lot about development. And I thought, this is really ultimately what I think we have to do. Now, the Association of Fundraising Professionals, many chapters, I know the Massachusetts chapter better, the Boston chapter, they really have made an effort, for example, to try to create a diversity opportunity. But unfortunately, what I've said to them is too far down the pipeline mm-hmm. is because it's, it's amazing for people who are already in the field. It gives them mentorship. It gives them experiences. It gives them a place to go and ask lots of questions, additional training. But I really think we have to create, create something like the Diversity Fellowship, which actually is the invitation in and the training and creates the visibility. It creates the segue, creates the pipeline. Mm-hmm. I think that's ultimately. But I get why people are afraid to do it. It's long-term. It's expensive. It requires the longevity of not only your funders, but also of a staff person or staff people. I was there with the project for almost 10 years. We put six cohorts out in eight years, and it was a bear to do Mm -hmm. it, make the case, to keep getting the funding. But it was an amazing opportunity. I count it as one of the best professional opportunities of my career because I know it made change and that it was systemic change as well as it was individual change. And that was important. And I think we'll end up having to do something like that in development. You know, Mm -hmm. I I saw something come across my LinkedIn feed yesterday and I don't know her personally. So forgive me, her name is not on the tip of my tongue, but a woman who's just been elevated to the the executive VP position of advancement and development at Rice University. Mm -hmm. That's huge. Just don't, you get people who've worked in development a lot, but you don't get very many people we're able to move to the top echelon of it, whether it's a nonprofit, philanthropic institutions, educational institutions. And so it was noteworthy, had been elevated and it was being celebrated. But I think we have to stop thinking it's going to be happenstance. Also, I want to just say that around development, what we know too is that most of our donors of wealth overwhelmingly are white. And there has been for some of them a discomfort in making those, having those kinds of conversations and making decisions about donations with people of color. And I think that more and more donors are moving beyond that, particularly young donors. Mm-hmm. And seeing this as an ED, we saw, and we've seen in the last five to six years in philanthropy, there's a new wave of those who've entered philanthropy and they really are rethinking what that the terms of philanthropy are, what it looks like, what development looks like, how you engage. And so I think there's a real opportunity, but I think it really will require a deep investment to actually create greater visibility for those who would like to actually build a career, build a profession and development, the people of color specifically. Yeah, that really resonates with me because I think to my mind, there's sort of an opportunity with new fundraisers and mid-level fundraisers, right? To the new fundraisers, because, you know, often if you're not from, you know, a background where you understand that philanthropy is actually a thing, like, you know, when I first got started in nonprofit, I, I didn't actually know that nonprofit fundraisers like that was a career path. Yeah, exactly. And so I think there's a lot of education and access that could happen. But then I also think what's so interesting about the field is that it's so it's so complicated, right? Because it's not just really it's not about just money. It's about power and privilege, class mm-hmm. status, mm-hmm. and a lot of the unspoken rules of all of these different dynamics. And until we can really actually talk about these things with bravery and courage and transparency, then it just, it feels a little bit like, am I crazy? Yeah, it won't make a difference. And that's, it's one of the things that was so critically important about the diversity fellowship program. We talked about power. 
Mm-hmm. We talked about dynamics. We talked about what it meant because many of the people who came into the fellowship, many of them had sat on the other side of the table as a grantee asking for money. Mm-hmm. And now here they were at a foundation responsible for putting together the docket, responsible for talking about the foundation, responsible for helping to think through the foundation's positions on who they might who they might select. And all of a sudden, they many of them were really struck by this this change in power dynamic and didn't like it or didn't mm-hmm. kind of handle it or were overwhelmed by it or felt badly about it. And right. so we have to spend a lot of time talking about what it means to do relation building, what it means to do relationship building, what it means to understand power dynamics, what it means to understand race, class, sex, and all of those things. And mm-hmm. so certainly people had talked about those things. They were aware of those things, but talking about them in the context of philanthropy, talking about them in the context of their new role in philanthropy was as much a part of the work as any other part of the training that we were doing. So mm-hmm. you're right on about that. Yeah. And I imagine too, as we see more and more high net worth individuals coming from diverse backgrounds, it's imperative that we have fundraisers from diverse backgrounds to be able to talk to them, right? That's right. That's right. They're going to have an expectation that institutions will have a variety of people that are, and some of which would look just like them or have some common experience. And so I think you're exactly right. Okay. I'm going to switch tasks a little bit here because you and I have been in, we've been in this game for a minute. Mm-hmm. And what we know is that I think we're seeing executive directors of color leaving the positions at unprecedented rates, and many of them are looking to start their own consultancies. Mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit about how it is that you started your own business, because I, I do talk to a lot of people, and it is something that a lot of folks are interested in. Mm-hmm. But I just think that, you know, number one, they may not know how to do it. Number two, they may lack the courage to do it, because especially because I think women of color we suffer from a lot of imposter syndrome. And so we're like, oh, if I just uh, watch this one extra video or do get this one extra degree or read this extra article, like then I'll be ready. Mm-hmm. And I mean, in my experience, I've only been on my own for less than a year, but it just seems to me that the only way that you're ready is that you just do it. You get out there. Exactly. Yeah. You know, as I said earlier, if for me, it was, you know, they say necessity is the mother of invention. And it was really, I had a tough choice. I had been an executive director. I loved my work, but I also now was a mom and I knew that my daughter would be my only child and I didn't want to miss it. Mm-hmm. And I was being, I was faced with, I was, I, we had moved from the East Coast to Northern California and I was applying to amazing positions. And for me, it wasn't even about that. I had to be a CEO or ED again. I was willing to take other positions to look to other roles. I just wanted to do good and interesting work. And all of them required long hours. And because Berkeley is a little bit of a distance from San Francisco and by BART, it was going to be add on more time. We're talking about a 45 minute to hour commute each way in and out and needed to be at my desk at 7 30 8 o'clock in the morning and basically most days probably wouldn't have left until 6 30 or 7 mm-hmm. well a child under two goes to bed early mm-hmm. and so it was conceivable that I would miss my daughter morning and night and not have been there and I, I just couldn't I couldn't imagine it I couldn't bring myself to it and I'll never forget literally standing on the corner in downtown San Francisco after getting an amazing job offer and calling my husband and then calling a mentor and saying, I can't take it. And I feel 
badly and I feel trapped. And it was when I got home, as I said, my husband was a wonderful encourager, said, look, you've been talking about this, thinking about this. I even referenced it in my graduate school application about becoming an entrepreneur. But again, like you said, I just assumed it was more training and I had to do this and I had to be older and, and all of these things. And then I realized this is when it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. It's happening now. Mm-hmm. And I just sat about calling on people asking questions. There's a book, Consultants for Dummy. I tried to think about everything I could to figure out how to do this and even still made tons and tons of mistakes, obviously. I literally started with a computer and didn't even at that point have a cell phone. This is how long ago this was. And I just started talking. But one of the things I think is is so important, no matter what day and age we're talking about, how old you are, when you're starting it, one of the things I had always done and done well was staying connected to people and mm-hmm. wanting to reach out and not for myself, but I was reaching out, asking them, how are you doing? What are mm-hmm. you doing? What are you learning? What's going on? Uh, what are you reading or who are you talking to? What project are you working on? And it was because I had done that, that actually a mentor literally was about to get into an elevator to leave a meeting. And the person he was meeting with put his hand in the elevator and said, oh, wait, wait, wait. You know, if you hear of anybody, I need a consultant and quickly, but this is the kind of experience I need. And literally I hit all of the check boxes. Mm. And they said, well, you should just give my, you know, this former student of mine a call. I don't know if it'll work. And just here, here's her number. And that's all he did. But it was because I was fresh in his mind because I had checked in. How are you doing? What projects? What are you doing? What's it look like? What's the landscape? What are the the trends you're seeing? Where are the challenges? that I was fresh in his mind about that I had moved to California. I was taking on new projects and then I was thinking about what was next. And he didn't even know at that point I was thinking about consulting. He just knew that I was thinking about some of the similar issues and it had the kind of criteria and background that this person was mentioning. And I started with one client kept building from there. What I think is toughest for consultants is people think it's just about their skill set and they don't realize how much work goes into new business development. That is critical in the way in which you do new business, business development. But even before that, I think one of the biggest mistakes that some consultants make is that they don't also think about the structure of their consulting practice, what they want. And it, there's no right or wrong answer here. Some people are doing it as a way just to, you know, sort of an interim while they think about something next, whether it's graduate school, applying for a different job or whatever it might be. Others are thinking, huh, I think I might be a little serious about this, but I'm going to put my toe in the water and see what happens. And then you've got people who come out of the gate knowing I want to build something. I want to build it big. I want to scale it. And there's, again, no right or wrong answer, but it is an important question to ask on the front end. I've had my practice, as I said, for almost 16 years. And for 12 of those years, my practice was a solo practitioner, was just me working on a small number of projects. And it was a way of being able to have work that I loved. I always kept something part-time that kept me in the philanthropic and nonprofit sector. I also was a professor at Boston University School of Management at, at Lesley College and also at Cambridge College. So I had all these other things that I was doing. So I didn't need or want the consultancy to be all encompassing. And so I just thought, 
thought about it as a goal of what I'm interested in, the types of projects, clients. Someone else might have a particular revenue goal they've got to hit. Mm-hmm. And that may be their driver. Someone else, again, may be thinking, I just want to do this for two or three years before I head off to graduate school or while my child is young. And they just really need to be honest with themselves on the front end about why they're doing it. And that gives them direction about how to do it. Don't go out and rent an office space. Don't go out and buy expensive stationery. You just may need to just be here for a minute and start and think about it. But for 12 years, it was a piece of my life, but we're talking about a quarter of my time to 50% of my time. And only in 2017 did I decide, you know, my daughter was older now, she had gone off to school, that I decided that now I wanted to go national be bigger. And then I was scaling it as an actual very different kind of business, setting very specific revenue goals, setting very specific professional development goals, setting out the kinds of clients each year that I wanted to add different and new to my portfolio, you know, really putting some strategy behind it, putting a different level of business planning behind it. And again, no right or wrong. It just is they're important questions to ask. Yeah. So gosh, you said a mouthful. And there's so many key points that I want to pull out there because I think I'm, I'm seeing a lot of that in my own business. Again, you know, mine is relatively new, but I, I think I'm seeing some similarities, which is number one, you know, really get yourself out there and add value. So mm-hmm. for me, like I've actually never done any actual business development in that traditional way. I've really just put myself out there to add value to people and to you know, help people, whether it's through the podcast or whether it's through one-on-one coffees. And I've been lucky that business has really just come. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not been a problem so far, mm-hmm. so knock on wood. The second piece I think is really key, which is to be honest with yourself, both about how big you want your business, but also are you the kind of person to be an entrepreneur? Because I, I think too, like if you're risk averse, like this is probably not a great move for you. If you're the kind of person who really needs stability and really needs like that paycheck coming in every two weeks, then this is probably not great. But Mm -hmm. if you are willing to take a risk, I think it's good. And then that third piece, which you didn't mention, but I'm sort of finding a lot as well is I feel like a lot of women, especially women of color, underprice themselves a lot. Mm, Mm -hmm. And so of late, and I've been talking about this a lot on the podcast, I've Mm -hmm. instituted what I'm calling the what would Chad do mindset, which is Mm -hmm. the privileged white man that that lives Mm -hmm. within us all. Be like, okay, well, what would Chad charge for that Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. consultancy? And then the the fourth piece, and I, I just want to dwell on this for a minute, is I think to me, there's a great distinction between being a consultant, an entrepreneur, and a freelancer. And mm-hmm. I think sometimes we get into this freelance mindset of like, okay, you know, money for time. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. to me, real scale is about how you free yourself from that time money trap and think about mm-hmm. scale, whether it looks like a group situation, whether it's selling products, whether it's selling right. you know, courses mm-hmm. that doesn't mm-hmm. actually involve you personally sitting there and like yeah. doing the, the work. Is that something that you've been thinking about as well? Yeah, and that's actually was, a again, when I said it three years ago, I'm going national, those are the kinds of questions and the kinds of steps I built in exactly that. And so the first step was, thankfully, I had not done the traditional underpricing. I was mm-hmm. always at the market and, and always doing market analysis. So I was right there with peers. And, and I'm glad that I did that. And I don't think there was any magic sauce in that other than I just thought, okay, I better do that. And the, mm-hmm. the, behavior, the behavior you start with is is 
best behavior because mm-hmm. it will be hard to change behavior later. So that part. But what I did have to do is that each step of the way, you begin to think through, again, different systems. So to your point about, again, if you're thinking about how you look at your time differently, you're going to create different kinds of systems. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't done that in the first 12 years. The first 12 years, it was very much about just, again, a solo practitioner taking on just a few projects a year. I probably, you know, had about five projects a year. And really, that was what I wanted to do. My, most of my clients were in Boston. I traveled maybe once or twice a year to New York or to DC. And that mm-hmm. was where I wanted it to be. Again, mm-hmm. I wanted to be with my daughter. I didn't want to miss anything. One of my proudest things is my daughter said to me a few years ago, she said, you know, it occurred to me that I have had a hot breakfast every day of my life oh. until I was a teen and then wanted to just do, you know, an apple or yogurt. Mm-hmm. I'm proud of that. Mm-hmm. This memory that she had hot breakfast meant she had breakfast with her parents and that it was the rare occasion that that was missed and that she went to school with that every day. Someone else might have something else. Again, these are not judgments. They're all just perfect. That she remembers that and sees that as value and personal time that I was present and there, that my husband was present and there means a great deal. And so that was a different kind of consultancy, though. That's not one that could be national on and off planes. That's not one that could take 20 projects on. That's not one that had a staff. And Mm -hmm. that wasn't that. That was very delicious specific. Three years ago, making these decisions meant having to staff up. It meant, again, having to really set very specific revenue goals, benchmarking them, looking at profit and loss statements, Mm -hmm. uh, really thinking through the kind of development, what kind of organizations I would join, getting a mentor. That's a different kind. And I would agree with you that sometimes people conflate these. I am, yes, I have owned a consultancy. I'm an entrepreneur. And that's very specific and different. And they're not, it's not meant to be one is more than less than. It just means that it, it tracks very differently in how I set out to do the work and, and what I expect is the end goal. Over time in these last three years, I've been moving to just what you're talking about, but still not there. But mm-hmm. how do I start monetizing my time differently? So it's been steps. So for for example, moving from an hourly rate to simply creating a flat rate. This is what I'm worth. This is what mm-hmm. I charge. And you know, if you have some questions, I'm happy to give you some breakdown of that. But it's rare that I'm going to go to an hourly rate. That that's mm-hmm. just anymore. And it's a flat rate for the work I do. And yes, I have a team that supports that work. It's not just me. And yes, your fee is helping to support that because we've elevated the work and the level of professionalism and the product you get. And the and the, the engagement is very different than what I used to do, you know, 10 or 11 years ago. Mm-hmm. And so yes, there, there are scale to that and there's cost to that. But it's also beginning to think about, as you said, how you start freeing yourself up. And this is where I'm spending a lot of deep dive time here. It's not just freeing yourself up, but it's also about beginning to say what you won't do anymore. And this Mm. is very, very difficult. I think it's Peter Drucker that says sometimes strategies as much about what you are not going to do as about what you are going to do. So I'm at a place again, and I've done this every two or three, every two years, I'll check in and say what kinds of projects, what kind of clients I don't want anymore. That 80-20 rule, you Mm -hmm. know, where are you spending the most time and getting the most value and making sure that that's, that's proportionally what you want it to be. And so I'm just, I'm doing that check now. And by the end of 20, 2019, there are some types of projects that I will do. I will ease out of them. I might do one or two in 2020. And by the end of 2020, I've 
fully expect that I won't do those kinds of projects anymore. Because and it's not because they don't have value or they're not interesting or my clients don't need them, but it's because again, there may be different places where I want to put my my time. Mm-hmm. I am really excited about this Gen Z work, this emerging leader work. Mm-hmm. I can do that, but I can't do that if I'm deeply involved in four strategic planning processes a year, which can take anywhere from four to nine months. That's if right. Strategic planning bad. I love it. I love working with my clients, doing that deep dive, working with them over time, but it may be that I can't do for those a year that I go back, I go to only do it two a year, this deeper dive around Gen Z work. So it's over time you begin to ask a different set of questions. And so when you were thinking about all of this, and, and maybe even now as you're thinking about this, are you working with a coach or an external person to help you think through? Because I think sometimes when you're in the business, it's hard to work on the business. It is. And I am, I wasn't always good about that. But again, the last three years was a critical turning point for me. Three years prior, you no, know, I, I was thinking about it fleetingly. I, you know, make some notes. I certainly was creating, I would sit down and think through the kinds of projects or again, what else I was going to add for value, but it wasn't as, as, a, as much as I would have liked to have done. Now I do that religiously. I actually start every day with that out the business. And one of my favorite quotes is, is Jay-Z and he says, I'm not a businessman. I'm a business, a business man. man. I know, love that, that one. Yeah. That is my quote. And so I start the day, I keep a folder. I go old school. I've got it on my computer and all of that, mm-hmm. but I go old school. I carry a folder. It is with me all the time. Yep. No matter business trip, no matter in my office, no matter at the coffee shop, that folder is with me and I can pull that folder out and I can tell you how much money I've got in the pipeline. I can tell you what projects are pending. I could tell you what projects I've bid for and I didn't get. And I can tell you that how many of them I was able to secure feedback as to why my firm didn't get the work because we're always on a learning edge. Mm. So I've got that with me and I'm checking it every day. What am I doing? What am I need to do more of? How am I, what am I, am I asking this question? Am I engaging with this correctly? One of the things that's been helpful for you know getting that mindset too is this past year I joined what's called Entrepreneurs Organization. It's EO and mm. it's an accelerator program. Mm-hmm. I had read about it about two years ago in a book that had come up and I took note of it, And it, but it was beyond my scale at that point. But then I realized they had an accelerator program. Mm-hmm. And so I accelerator program. I'm loving that because it's not it's not onerous. It's not meant to be a burden. So it's just once a quarter, you have a meeting and you're with a whole lot of others. I'm in the DC chapter. So we, we come from Maryland, DC, Virginia. Mm-hmm. But this work, Boston has a a chapter in New York, they're all over the country, but that's been really helpful. And then you have a monthly accountability group that's two hours long. I get in the car. And so these these quarterly meetings mean that I have to be in the car between 5.30 and 6 a.m. because of traffic to drive from Baltimore to get to, to the D.C. area where the meeting's being held once a month. I just did it yesterday. I've got to drive because everyone else is closer to the, to the D.C., Virginia area, and I have to drive there for our, our monthly accountability group. It's important. But I've also sought out a mentor who started five businesses, who's not associated with the with the EO, but he has started five businesses. And I've said to him, look, I need you to look at the short term and long term, and I need you to help me understand what I'm not doing well. And mm-hmm. one of the things I know when he looks at this most updated version, one of the things I know he's going to say to me is I have got to do two things. One is I've got to hire some more staff, so it's less dependent on me. I know the other thing he's going to say to me is that I need to narrow, that I still have too many things. If you look at my consulting portfolio, it names about five or six things that we do as a firm and we do them and do them well, but I probably need to get that down to just three and ultimately yeah. it might just be one or two. Yeah. So there's 
there's growth still to be had and there are good questions to be asked. Yeah, I, I think the the term the riches are in the niches really resonates for me because, you know, especially in the beginning, I just, I said yes to a lot of projects that I probably wouldn't say yes to now just because, you know, it's money in the door. And I think- Yeah, you're trying to get this, going. Yeah, trying yeah. to get going. And I think the scarcity mindset too is like, I got to just say yes to, you know, because this mm-hmm. might be the last thing. But as I've kind of figured out- you know, my process, the work that I enjoy the most and sort of what my my monthly revenue goal is. And I think it's really clarified what I will do and what I won't do to your point. Mm-hmm. And I think you bring up another point too, which is as entrepreneurs and really as anybody, as leaders of organizations or nonprofits, we always have to be thinking about increasing our skill set, getting outside support and mentorship to help you think about the business. So whether you're running a nonprofit, whether you're running your own company, you can't do it alone. And no, not at all. And not I think- at all. You need some help. And and again, for 12 years, it was just me and that was fine. But when I decided to go national and there were going to be more clients, there just were going to be more plates and be, you know, in the air, I'd be more travel. The first two things I added was a, an assistant and I added a firm to handle. There was always an accountant who helped do the end of year taxes, but I added a bookkeeper who now feeds mm. the data over to the accountant. And I feel strongly having those be two separate places for checks and balances is how I feel about it. So I have two separate firms that manage that and love them both, and they work really well together. But I have the accounting firm that manages the bookkeeping the day-to-day, can give me my profit and loss statement, can tell me year over year where I am, mm-hmm. uh, up or down, can help me see, make sure invoices are going out the door, making sure the clients are, are, are receivables are coming in. All of those things now are off my plate, and it's, been, it's amazing because it's a lot of time to do that administrative work. And so I've really appreciated that, and it's, it's, an, it's not an, an astronomical be and mm. it feels well worth it every month and you can add other services as you need them and as you grow yeah the other was getting an assistant and and the assistant is just doing admin for me the assistant yeah. is managing email managing scheduling and making sure all the trains are running and that is again a big help because the schedule literally their things are changing as you know and scheduling our meeting that are just changing momentarily in the moment and so i'm appreciative of of having an assistant and we're talking about very part-time we're not talking about full-time every day yeah we're talking about a set number of hours per month i can add to those hours if i need them i can go down if i don't yeah I'm taking most of august off so i won't need as many hours but you know right now in july i just got an email to day saying you've run out of hours we need you to bank more because it's just been really busy yeah um, and so anyway i think that adding some systems can be really helpful and actually allow you to go further faster yep. by adding some things that are important yeah I, so a couple of questions because i know we have to go how many people do you have on staff right now so at any given time we've got between about six and eight and say that is staff and no one's full-time everyone's okay. at 1099 but in the next two years i think i'm going to move to at least a vice president who would end up being full-time so that they can manage the operations and they can manage project management, the work, so that I can work fully on new business development and some of these other things. So that's a, a new goal I've set and we'll see what, what happens with that. But right now, these other folks, so we're talking about a designer, a copy editor, we're talking about the assistant, there are two assistants working on different things, a financial analysis, who help, a financial analyst who helps us on projects that require that skill set. So John's with us on some projects, but not all, mm-hmm. and a project manager and a researcher. 
And do you find it hard because it is the Tammy Blackman group to figure out how to scale out? Because I assume that a lot of people want to talk to you since it is your company. And I'm just wondering, how do you manage the fact that you can't be everywhere all of the time and that I would imagine at some point you want to scale out to be able to farm out to other consultants? Yeah. And so what I really am working to have them understand is that it's a brand, a way in which we do the work, a way in which we care and value the work. And it's not just specific to me. There are some things. So for example, a project I'm finishing up that was very specific to community foundations that did really require to me to be front and center because that organization, like the fact that I had done community foundations as vice president of an organization that's solely benefiting community foundations. So to all of a sudden to have removed myself from the project and, and, and had only one other person or other team members wouldn't have been fair to them because that's part of what they were hired for. But other projects may not be. But also, you can still interface with each of your clients, but you can have a lot of that other back office work being done by others. So now all the research can go to someone else. The interviews, we do hundreds of interviews a year for various client projects from strategic planning processes to visioning processes to when we're helping them to think through a new a new project or initiative hundreds of interviews again i used to do that but now that there are hundreds of them a year that just doesn't make any sense and so all those things don't require that be me but me presenting the data to the client me being there for their board meeting those things still matter but mm-hmm. the key but as I'm moving folks toward it is that there's going to be a project manager on every new project introduced at the very beginning. Got and it. so that they understand that this person is the one that they will talk to mostly. This person is the one keeping the trains running, helping them to make critical decisions, preparing them for meetings, board meetings. And certainly I'm there. I'm part of the check-ins. I'm part of the decision-making, but I am not the leader of the project. This project manager is. Mm-hmm. So I've just begun in that in 2019, I began by hiring a project manager and seeing how to work that through and learning and still very involved. So it's not that I've been, I've stepped away in 2019, but in 2020, I'd love to see that model fully at at work. So yeah, Tammy, this is so great. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. And I want to schedule another call because we didn't even get into Gen (laughs) Z conversation, which I am super fascinated. I want to know the differences between millennials and Gen Z, how to lead them effectively. I mean, check in, check in. I'd be happy to share what we're learning. So thank you for the opportunity. I'm wishing everyone the best. All right. All right. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. 